You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Barrett. Coming up, a bipartisan pair of lawmakers tell us about a new bill that would give survivors of clergy abuse more time to file civil lawsuits. First, it's time for Wisconsin Life. 43 years ago this month, almost 15,000 Cuban refugees were sent to live in southwest Wisconsin. WPR dove into the history of this situation in the podcast WPR Reports Uprooted. Here's producer Maureen McCollum with a preview of the podcast, which explores the lives of Cubans in Wisconsin. Imagine you're a 16-year-old kid thousands of miles from home. You've just stepped off a plane in Wisconsin. For the next few months, you'll be living at an army base. There are strangers, people who don't speak your language. It feels like you're living in prison. Your whole world has been uprooted. You think you're alone, far from family and friends, when suddenly you discover your father, who you've barely had a relationship with, is also at this military base in Wisconsin. This was the reality for Armando Rodriguez, who left his barracks at Fort McCoy daily to meet with his father, Guillermo Rodriguez. I saw my dad on the other side of the fence, and we talked from afar. And we spent about a month and some like that. Armando and Guillermo are from Cuba and had to live at Fort McCoy until they found a home in the United States. They were here in Sparta, Wisconsin, because of the Mariel boat lift. For five months in 1980, the Cuban government opened its borders and let its residents leave for the U.S. during the height of the Cold War. Almost 125,000 Cubans fled the island and landed in South Florida by boat. She says more craft are expected to make the journey in what could build into a Dunkirk-like evacuation. Because of that, the president yesterday declared a state of emergency in southern Florida. There's a hopeful feeling that they will be allowed to stay in this country and to find jobs. Many refugees left their homeland to find a better opportunity or escape Fidel Castro's communist government. Some wanted to be reunited with family. Others were plucked from jail and pushed onto boats. We arrived here in Key West, and then we arrived at Fort McCoy. In Fort McCoy, I stayed for five months. Armando was one of the nearly 15,000 people sent to Fort McCoy in Wisconsin before he found a home. Most of the Cubans who came to Wisconsin left the area after connecting with family or finding sponsors. But some people, like Armando, remained in southern Wisconsin. They created lives here as bus drivers, fathers, and musicians. Now, 42 years later, many of the refugees want to visit Cuba. People like Armando want to go just one more time, but they can't. I've never been able to visit Cuba. I would like to visit Cuba. I'm not allowed to go. And if I go... I can't come back. I'm in the same situation as everyone else who has committed a crime. His friends in Wisconsin feel the same. I'm 63 years old. Wow, times go fast, (laughs) you know. And I haven't given up. I I have faith. The immigration, you know, give us a second chance. Why can those Cubans get a second chance? Do you want to go back and visit also? Yeah, I want to go see my mama before she died. I can go to Cuba. Oh, you can? Yeah, I can go. Because I was lucky, I never met a crime. The only problem is when I want to do my passport, I talk to my sister to send my birth certificate. And when I see my birth certificate, 
That's wrong. That's not my name. Because when I when I tried to kill him, I always say, you know, the reason I did it because I want to go back to Cuba. I'm Maureen McCollum, and this is Uprooted, a new podcast from Wisconsin Public Radio. We'll hear from Cuban Wisconsinites who arrived here more than 40 years ago. These are the unheard voices behind the headlines. What were their lives like in Cuba? What was the journey like across the sea? What has life been like in Wisconsin? And after 40 years, where did they go from here? Subscribe to Uprooted wherever you get your podcasts, and you can see more at wpr.org uprooted. Wisconsin Life is a co-production of Wisconsin Public Radio and PBS Wisconsin in partnership with Wisconsin Humanities. Additional support comes from Lola Mary Peterson of Appleton. I'm Maureen McCollum. To find the Uprooted podcast, go to Season 3 of WPR Reports wherever you listen to podcasts. Now a bipartisan group of lawmakers is introducing a new bill that would raise the time limit for survivors of clergy abuse to file civil lawsuits. The bill would increase the statute of limitations for survivors by 10 years, from age 35 to 45. The bill comes as a number of other states this year are changing time limits on these civil suits in clergy abuse cases. You could join in at 800-642-1234. What do you think of this change? Should there be a statute of limitations for survivors of clergy abuse to sue? How do you feel about the current level of state support for victims? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Melissa Agard is a Democratic state senator from Madison representing the 16th District. Senator Agard, welcome back to Central Time. Thanks so much for having me. And Jesse James is a Republican state senator from Altoona representing the 23rd District. Senator James, thanks for joining us again. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Senator James, can you talk about this this 10-year change, uh, age 35 to 45, why that particular number? Well, I, I think bringing parity to our civil statutes, meeting our criminal statutes, just makes common sense and it's logical. Uh, I don't see why we couldn't get this done. Plus, um, with victims, timelines, um, and recollections and memories and stuff don't aren't always prevalent like right then and there. There's stuff that happens, and um, for them to have the opportunity, the the ten years to match the criminal versus civil, I think just makes sense. And Senator Eggard, some advocates uh, say, "Hey, why not get rid of the statute statute limitations uh, in the first place?" As some states are looking at doing, uh, why not go all the way in that direction? Well, we know that for far too long, there have been legal barriers that have halted the justice and healing process for survivors of sexual violence in Wisconsin, and especially our kids. And it's past time that we um, act and make sure that we're providing um, providing folks uh, the path to healing so that they um, they can take care of themselves. Um, and, you know, they're part of legislating is compromise. Is this the bill that I originally drafted? No. Um, and I am thrilled that uh, Senator James is willing to walk, walk through this um, path with me and lift up these stories. Yes. Um, am I hopeful that we can get to a point where all survivors um, are able to um, to have that type of closure? Certainly. But I, I am proud of uh, the work, the bipartisan work that is happening here. And I am grateful for the brave survivors who are able to share their stories. 
um, and uh, help us usher this through. And uh, we'll cheer them on uh, as they continue to pave the path. Senator James, you chair the Senate's Children and Families Committee. Uh, can you talk about the timeline for bringing this uh, bill uh, through the committee and to the whole legislature? Yeah, that's a very good question. I appreciate the question. Um, right now, we're so, from moving from the Assembly to the Senate and the requirements of um, legislation for our budget motions to go through the Joint Finance Committee, we're, we've been strictly focusing on bills that pertain to the budget. Um, as soon as the budget is done, we're going to move forward and get to get a hearing on this uh, Child Victims Act bill. Senator Agard, can you talk about uh, the bipartisan work on this? People don't necessarily think of uh, bipartisan cooperation in the legislature. I'm talking to a, a Democrat and Republican right now about this. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and frankly, this bill predates my time in the legislature. I've been in the legislature for um, a little over a decade at this point in time. And uh, I know that there have been broad support of a uh, coalition of people who have been rolling up their sleeves um, and working very hard uh, to make sure that we're supporting um, children of uh, uh, survivors of sexual violence in the state of Wisconsin. I think we can all agree that it is an important job of legislators um, to make sure that our communities are safe, especially safe for our kids. And knowing that we have champions on both sides of the aisle um, to continue this conversation is really refreshing. And I look forward to being able to uh, have this bill come to a hearing, um, you know, probably early this fall, as Senator James said, and inviting uh, survivors into the Capitol building to share their stories. And, you know, I think it's also really important for people across Wisconsin to know um, that, you know, this bill, um, this is something that we absolutely need to um, get across the finish line, but there's not one piece of legislation uh, that is going to um, cure the harm that has been given to people in our communities, as well as knowing that there are other policies we can do to also prevent harm. And um, being able to have these conversations in a bipartisan manner, knowing that there are legislators of different political flavors that are prioritizing this, I think should give the people of Wisconsin some hope. Senator James, uh, when there have been past efforts to completely remove that timeline uh, for civil suits, uh, some religious organizations have objected, saying, hey, this this could do severe financial harm to religious institutions, ultimately harming current parishioners, uh, not just you know the past perpetrators of these acts. Uh, do you do you want to address those concerns? Uh, if if uh, people of faith uh, groups may be fearing more lawsuits that could hurt their local place of worship. You know, I I have to agree with Senator Agard on this is this is something where our children are impacted by this, um, and. I take it very serious. We have to fight for our youth that don't have strong enough voices at the age of when incidents like this occur. Um, no matter whether it's religious affiliation, family affiliation, you know, there's there's victims that I've dealt with directly that have been dramatically impacted by these sexual acts for their entire life. And that's where it comes down to, I think, bringing some form of remedy, adding the 10 years to the civil is just a, a way to go, regardless of um, the church state of mind and concern. 
and Senator Agard. As we wrap up, are there other things uh, you want to see passed through the legislature to do uh, what Senator uh, James uh, was talking about, provide some level of, of redress for victims of uh, past clergy abuse? Absolutely. Uh, there is a handful of policies that I have been outspoken about over the years. One addressing um, healthy relationships and um, dating violence for young people within our communities, the good touch, bad touch for um, younger kids as well. Those are two bills. And another, you know, making sure, and this one is a little bit trickier um, for some members of both of uh, Senator James and my caucuses, is holding uh, our clergy accountable as mandatory reporters of child abuse and neglect um, in the same way that we would for physicians and healthcare providers, school teachers and staff, counselors and social workers. I do not think that an exemption for clergy there is um, the right thing for the state of Wisconsin. Our kids are our most valuable resource and having one of the most important jobs of government, ensuring safety, uh, ensuring safety of our children um, is paramount. We'll leave it there. Senator Agard, thanks for being with us today. Thank you very much. And Senator James, thanks for being with us. So thank you for having me. Have a great day. You too. That was Jesse James, Republican State Senator from Altoona, and Melissa Agard, Democratic State Senator from Madison. They joined us for a look at their new legislation that would extend the timeline for civil lawsuits for survivors of clergy sexual abuse in Wisconsin. Coming up, we'll get a reaction from a national group of abuse survivors, and you can join in with your thoughts or questions at 800-642-1234. Do you support this change in the law we've been talking about? Does it go far enough? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. We'll continue the conversation coming up on Central Time. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Verrett. We continue our talk about a proposed state law that would extend the timeline for civil lawsuits filed by survivors of sexual abuse by clergy. The law would change the current cap from age 35 to age 45. What would you like to know about how states are handling clergy abuse? Are you... uh, Are you a survivor yourself? If you'd care to share your story, you could join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Melanie Sakota joins us now, Survivor Support Coordinator for the Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests. Melanie, welcome to Central Time. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, we just heard from this uh, bipartisan pair of lawmakers uh, working to extend that statute of limitations uh, from age 35 to age 45 to be able to file that lawsuit uh, for survivors of clergy abuse. Uh, What's your reaction to this proposal? I think any progress in that direction is great. Uh, My ideal would be that there would be no criminal and no civil statute of limitations for child sex abuse. How much are states moving in that direction toward just lifting that uh, limitation to begin with? I think the the movement is in that direction. You've seen some states um, have achieved it already. Some states are working working towards it. I live in California. California has a bill before the state legislature now to eliminate the civil statute of limitations. So that's that's what the trend is because people have recognized, uh, I think, two different things. One, that research and studies show that it take it can take survivors decades to come forward with their stories to feel to understand what happened to them, to remember it, and to have the courage to come forward. And what you want is you want these people to come forward because when. Um, the more we know about who the abusers are, the better able we are to protect children. And unfortunately, those who abuse children 
often are not stopped as they age. So we want as many of the people as possible who have abused to be become known. How many more people might be eligible to file a lawsuit if we raise that age from 35 to 45 or 50s or beyond? How, how common is it, is it for people to come forward at, uh, at later ages? Um, studies show that the average age for someone to come forward is 52, which means that you will have some people coming forward below that age and some people waiting until their 60s or 70s. I think I've the light or the oldest I've heard of is someone in their 80s coming forward for the first time. So you want those windows to be open uh, for two reasons. You want um, number one, so you know who the abusers are, so people can protect themselves, and number two, so that other survivors who may have been abused by the same perpetrator can also have an opportunity to know that they were not the only ones. A lot of survivors feel that it was something that they did, that they are, and that they're the only ones this has happened to. So whenever you have someone coming forward and getting names out in the public, other people can begin their healing journey by saying, oh, it happened to me too. Part of the goal is to hold individual perpetrators accountable. How important are these kind of lawsuits, though, when it comes to holding an institution accountable, maybe a religious organization that uh, that didn't do its job at uh, at keeping its its own members in line? I think they're extremely important. They're the main reason why institutions have uh, begun any changes to help protect children within their institutions. And it, it, it's going to have to, con- I think it, it hurts them where, where they feel it. It hurts them in their bottom line. And it also ha- provides the secondary um, help to the survivors. Um, mental health care in this country is not often in, within reach of the average person. It's, it's expensive. And this can help people on their healing journey by providing them with the resources they need to get the help that they need. As a survivor support coordinator at uh, the Survivors Network of those abused by priests, what kind of help do you see people needing? What kind of what are the best ways to support people who are victims of clergy abuse? I think the best way to do is to listen to them, to believe them, uh, to tell them that you're sorry for what happened, that it wasn't their fault. Um, there are different groups, such as our, our group, we offer peer-to-peer support. Um, we have leaders in different states that they are welcome to call or email and talk to about what they're going through. We also have a wide variety of virtual support groups, which means that they can talk with a whole group of other survivors about what they experienced and see where it's similar, where it's different, share ideas for Um, What helps with issues, Um, you know, what do other people do about depression, insomnia, anxiety, and then pick from those ideas to see what works best for them to heal themselves. Now, Wisconsin, sadly, no exception uh, when it comes to clergy abuse stories over the last uh, decades, I guess. Melanie, for somebody listening uh, who is a survivor of this kind of abuse, who hasn't come forward yet, who hasn't sought help, do you have some thoughts, maybe some advice for them? I think don't suffer alone and in silence. If there are family members or friends that you think would listen to you and believe you, you might start there. 
Um, if you're not seeing a therapist, you might look into seeing if you can have professional help with recovery. And then look, reach out for, there's groups, there's our group for uh, primarily for clergy abuse survivors, but there's also other groups, um, RAIN, the Rape Abuse Incest National Network, that provides support for survivors of abuse. And whether you're, uh, they will help both clergy abuse survivors and people who are abused in other situations. So there is help out there. Look for it. Don't, don't just, don't just suffer. You, this will always be a part of your life, but you can get better. And briefly, as a wrap up, uh, Melanie, we've been talking about state laws in Wisconsin and elsewhere. Are you looking toward federal laws that uh, might affect these lawsuits? Um, yes, I think the fed the federal laws um, right now are are fairly solidly in support of child victims. Um, it's just that people don't always realize that that's another option. Um, particularly for those who were maybe um, taken across state lines. That's something you might want to look into, contact your local FBI office to see um, whether you can file criminal charges and um, to see if there's available. I, I'm not exactly sure what's available in terms of uh, civil remedies, but I imagine it would be the same you could sue in, in uh, federal court. Melanie, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having discussion about this important issue. That's Melanie Sakota, Survivor Support Coordinator for the Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests. She joined us for a look at proposed state laws that would extend the timeline for civil lawsuits filed by survivors of clergy sexual abuse. Coming up tomorrow here on Central Time, Saudi Arabia's Golf League is merging with the established PGA, raising concerns about sports washing, Saudi human rights abuses, and the future of the game in the U.S. and around the world. We'll find out what's going on, and you can weigh in that and more coming up tomorrow on Central Time. Coming up after the news, some high-profile TV shows aired their final episodes over the last few weeks. A Wisconsin pop culture expert joins us for a look at programs past and present and whether or not they had a successful conclusion. I'm Rob Ferret. This is Central Time here on the Ideas Network. Central Time. I'm Rob Ferrett. You're listening to us on the Ideas Network. Coming up, Governor Tony Evers and state Republicans reached a deal on a shared revenue bill for local governments. We'll learn more about how that money can be spent and how it'll impact communities across the state. First, it can be hard to say goodbye, and sometimes a song can help. So long, farewell, I'll be there saying goodbye. The sun has gone to bed and so must I. Thank you, fellas. That was perfect. That was the character Danny Rojas leading the singing in a recent finale of the Apple TV show Ted Lasso with the title character responding. Lasso, along with the popular HBO show Succession, marks some of the latest finales to join the pantheon of major TV endings. 
And you can join in at 800-642-1234. Did it show you loved end this year? What did you think of that last episode? Do you have a favorite final episode of all time? What did you love about it? Do you have a least favorite one? What led you down or frustrated you? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or you can post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Brian Carr is a professor of communication, information science, and women and gender studies at UW-Green Bay. Brian, welcome back to Central Time. Oh, thank you very much. It's great to be back. What is the formula, as you watch it, Brian, for a successful conclusion to a long-running TV series? So there are different schools of thought on this. Uh, One is that you want to make sure that you tie up your loose ends narratively, that the themes of the show come through in a very meaningful way, even if that doesn't necessarily give some of the most ardent fans of the show what they're looking for. Or you give the fans exactly what they're looking for, Uh, And you make them very, very happy at the end of the season. I think that if you talk about those two shows, Succession did the former, Ted Lasso did the latter, and they both did them, I think, quite well in those frameworks. We got to say, we're talking about a privileged few TV shows, ones that run their course, that give the creators enough time to lead up to that finale. The vast majority of TV shows end, you know, maybe after one episode or one season, they don't know the end is coming. That said, that puts a lot of weight on those shows that do have the opportunity. How have you seen it go wrong for shows that make it to that point? Uh, Let's just start with a little show called Game of Thrones, Um, (laughs) a show that uh, outlived or or, the uh, did not necessarily have enough of the actual source material to adapt. So they had to basically go off of notes from the original creator and decided to rush the last season because the showrunners were basically and understandably tired of, of doing the show. Um, and they decided to just go ahead and do something that thematically made a lot of sense. If you go back and watch that show, like the ending of that show where those characters end up, it completely logical follows where things were headed, but was done so abruptly and rushed so much that fans ended up being very alienated and angry uh, by how that turned out. And then they showed up for house of the dragon anyway. So what do I know? Now, we've mentioned Succession, another uh, high-profile show that just came to an end. Here is a clip. The siblings, Shiv, Kendall, and Roman, doing what they do, I guess. They talk and argue over who should succeed to take over the company. It's six to six, okay. and we don't have shows vote. This doesn't make, like, logic. Where's the logic? No, I just don't think you'd be good at it. I feel like if I don't get to do this... I, I I feel like that's it. Like I might I might I, like I, I might die. Shiv, can we go in that room? Can you just vote? Please. Please. You can't be CEO. You can't because you killed someone. What? But which? What? Wait. What which? Mean, which? But like what? Like you killed so many people, you forgot which one. That's that, that's not an issue. And as you said, Brian, some shows end by uh, continuing what they've been doing all along. I, I haven't watched Succession much, but that uh, that fits the formula. 100%. That show <laughs> very much. The show, uh, I, I think one of the problems about Succession is I think people got caught up in what they thought it was versus what it actually was. What they thought it was, oh, here's characters that we root for, characters we want to see succeed or fail. What it actually was, this is a satire and a scathing indictment of not only the American media system, but really of America itself. 
And to have essentially the crux of the show boil down to squabbling siblings in a boardroom was really the only way it could have ended. Uh, just it's it's the only real true ending they could have had. We were talking about great and not so great TV finales. Those last episodes, whether they get it right or wrong. Brian Carr is with us from UW Green Bay, and you could share your favorites or least favorites at 800-642-1234 shows new or old 800-642-1234 let's bring on a caller now chris is with us in delavan chris hi hi how's it going uh thanks for having me on i just wanted to bring up uh what i think is possibly the most infamous last episode of all time and that being the last episode of lost and uh i was totally enthralled with the show all the way through up until I regularly tell people to, you know, you can watch the last episode, but I recommend just don't watch the last 15 minutes of the last episode because it just makes you feel like you wasted all of your time before that point. And uh, that's it for me. Chris, thanks a lot. Now, that is one, Brian, that gives a, a lot of strong feelings there, the last episode of Lost. The creators have explained it. It's not, uh, you know, they have this explanation of or what inspired them and what actually was happening. But I guess if you have to read stuff by the creator to understand it and then like it, maybe it's not such a successful conclusion. There is some, there's certainly an argument you made there. And uh, this is where I'm going to kind of disclose the only episode I ever watched of Lost was the finale. Um, so I was completely lost. Yes. Yeah. You would have been really lost. I feel like it feels appropriate though. Right. (laughs) Uh, but so, but I was fascinated by it all the same because I had, you know, picked up a lot of it through cultural osmosis, right? Like, I'm like, okay, so they're on an Island. The Island may or may not be purgatory, whatever. Um, but yeah, I, I, there is definitely something to be said for a show that delivers its finale in such a way where if you were expecting a certain outcome or expecting a certain amount of catharsis or an ending, and the show either refuses to deliver that or doesn't deliver that. It, I, the caller is absolutely right. Like you can feel like you wasted your time, <laughs> and that's one possible way to react to one of your favorite shows ending. Thanks, uh, for, thanks for that for call sure. at eight hundred six four two one two three four. Now, Brian, he could have ended that sentence with Lost when it comes to infamous final episodes. He could have ended it with. Seinfeld. Uh, now, here's a clip from the finale. Uh, the show is mostly in a courtroom where witnesses from throughout the show uh, have, a, in effect, a massive clip show looking back at all the, the bad things the characters did. Here's a moment. I banned that one, the woman, for a year. <laughs> then one day, she came back. Five cups, chopped porcini mushrooms, half a cup of olive oil, three pounds celery. This is my recipe for wild mushroom. You're through, soup Nazi. Pack it up. No more soup for you. Next! Published my recipes. I had to close the store and move to Argentina. She ruined my business. This soup's not all that good anyway. What did you say? (laughs) This is one that I think frustrated a lot of uh, the hardcore fans of the show, Brian. It was, and and I understand that, but uh, having recently rewatched that show, again, it feels like the only appropriate ending. Uh, This is a show where the characters sort of very notably are constantly making other people's lives worse, and even in some cases destroying their well-being. So there is something sort of cathartic on some level, maybe not for the audience, but maybe for the show's sort of internal logic, that eventually they're going to have to, the past will catch up with them. Uh, I will say that ending your series with the characters in a cell 
uh, <laughs> awaiting, uh, you know, serving on an indeterminate amount of time on a prison sentence is very, very interesting. Um, and there were also a lot of other fake outs, including like a, they, they made it look like the plane was going to crash that they were on for a moment. Uh, it's also interesting that they actually had an entire season about that episode in Larry David's later show, Curb Your Enthusiasm, that addressed some of these. So if you haven't checked that out, it's worth watching. <laughs> Let's go back to our callers now. Erica is with us in Lake Tomahawk. Erica, hello. Well, good afternoon. I think one of the one of the sweetest endings ever was Big Bang, and one of the worst was Cheers. It was that was I don't know if they were drunk or what the deal was. <laughs> was that the one where they had they had like John McLaughlin, the sort of serious uh, public affairs guy, interviewing, like having a panel discussion with the characters? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I think they were lit. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, it's the TV business. That's certainly possible. Thanks a lot for that call. Pro Big Bang. And and the Cheers is one that's gotten talked about a lot over the years. Not a fan there, Brian. No, but it is one of the highest rated finales of all time. Uh, And what's interesting, if you go back and you look at shows like MASH and Cheers and that sort of thing, and even Seinfeld, these were shows that were massive cultural events. They were rapidly approaching the Super Bowl in terms of actual viewership. And that just doesn't happen anymore. Uh, the you know the, we talk about the uh, finales for Ted Lasso and Succession. Succession got I think about two point two million viewers, which is nothing compared to eighty point four for Cheers or one hundred and five for Mash, uh, which is pretty emblematic of how much just the business of television has changed. Thanks a lot for that call, Brian Carr is with us from UW Green Bay, and we're looking at TV show finales, a couple big ones. But by modern standards anyway, just passes by. Talking about what makes them great or terrible, and you could join in at 800-642-1234. If there is a series you have loved and it made it to a finale, did it do what you wanted it to do? Did it uh, wrap up the show in a satisfying way for you, or did it disappoint you? Call in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. We'll continue the conversation. Take more of your calls coming up on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Verrett. Right now, we're picking up our conversation about TV finales with Brian Carr, professor of communication, information science, and women and gender studies at UW-Green Bay. You can join in at 800-642-1234. What last episode of what show do you want to bring up for better or worse? Call it at 800-642-1234. Let's go back to your calls. Uh, Susie is with us in New Berlin. Hi, Susie. Hi. I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember this show. But uh, the Bob Newhart show, when he and his wife were running an inn in, I don't know, someplace in the northeast corner, um, the last show, um, if you were a Bob Newhart fan, as I was, I mean, there are a lot of people that just followed him no matter what he he was doing, because he's just got such dry humor. Anyway, um, uh, the end of the last show, I don't even remember what they did at the inn. Called it quits, closed the doors, I don't know. And then all of a sudden it switched to the show before that. They were in bed in their apartment in Chicago, which was the series before the other one started. And uh, the wife woke up and she said, I just had the weirdest dream. We had an inn in the Northeast, (laughs) you know. Sure. So anyway, they they tied the two together. I thought that was kind of cute and I felt good about it. it. It felt very done. 
Susie, thanks a lot for the call. And that's one I think people bring up a lot, Brian. Yeah, the Newhart Show ended as a dream in the previous Bob Newhart Show. Uh, I don't know, funny joke, or is it It was all a dream? Did that? Uh, it didn't disappoint our caller, but maybe other people weren't wild about it. It's one of those things where if it feels right for the tone of the show, uh-huh. it's probably fine. But yeah, the it's all a dream cop-out is usually just that. <laughs> Thanks a lot for that call at 800-642-1234. Terry is with us now in Milwaukee. Hi, Terry. Yeah, hi. This is a copycat of Susie's. Um, St. Elsewhere, I don't know if your guest Brian's old enough to remember that. Um, in the hospital setting with Hollywood's uh, depiction of how they spot people working in a hospital, a busy hospital operate, and... Uh, Sadly, it ended with uh, a child having a dream. Right. Uh, it pans back, I, I think, uh, Brian. It's been a while. And then you see that uh, the hospital is inside like a snow globe, and it's a kid holding the snow globe, and it was all uh, an illusion or a dream or something like that. Where is that on your list? So I, I have not watched St. Elsewhere. I will be completely transparent <laughs> about that. Uh, but the snow globe ending is infamous and certainly one of those ones that has been referenced, parodied, et cetera. <laughs> and again, when you set up the finale as saying everything that you just watched ultimately was just false, it wasn't real, you are adding a level of artifice to something that's already inherently artificial. And it really does not, I, I personally think that's usually not a great way to end it. But Again, we remember it, so maybe they did something right. <laughs> Thanks for the call, Terry. Uh, Mercedes joins us next in Green Bay. Mercedes, hi. What shows do you have for us? Hi. Um, so I just recently watched Breaking Bad and uh, Better Call Saul in that order. Um, I know uh, Breaking Bad's finale has been hailed by a lot of people, but I honestly really didn't like it because I don't think Walt got what he deserved, honestly. Um, but I think that its sequel series, Better Call Saul, was amazing in how it carried out its finale, especially in tying up the characters' loose ends and their stories. Mercedes, thanks a lot for sharing that. And uh, I think it was a good non-spoiler way to talk about the end of Breaking Bad. Mm-hmm. Brian, what do you think? Yeah, and I'll try to also avoid spoilers as much as I can. I mean, it's I know been it's out a very, for a while. But, it yeah. is, but people are still discovering it, so I'll, I'll, I'll cut them a break. But yeah, it is something sort of anticlimactic. Uh, it really comes down to, do you see Walt Walter White as a hero or a villain? And the show is very clear. You should see him as a villain. The fandom is not always as clear. And so if you see him as a hero, it's almost sort of like this sort of poetic ending. If you don't see him as that, like, uh, yeah, like Mercedes said, it is not satisfying because you're like, wait a minute, this is just, he got off too light. Right. Um, Better Call Saul in a lot of ways from uh, and I kind of gave up on that, but I did keep up with the show. I read about it. I followed the ending. Um, Feels like in a lot of ways they were trying to kind of maybe sort of reorient the kind of moral compass of those two shows with that ending. Mercedes, thanks a lot for that call. We're talking to Brian Carr from UW-Green Bay about great and less great TV series finales after a couple of big ones dropped over the last few weeks. Let's go back to your calls at 800-642-1234. Lynn is with us in Houstisford. Lynn, hi. Hi. Um, I think the best ending of any program that I can think of, besides the one for Bob Newhart, that was cool, but it's MASH. Um, the way they ended that with the f- going up and then seeing all the people down below, um, that was pretty good ending. Lynn, thanks a lot for the call. We've got a we've got a listen here to a, a clip. Here's a Hawkeye, the Alan Alda saying goodbye to his partner in medicine and crime, B.J. Honeycutt. <laughs> 
Look, I know how tough it is for you to say goodbye, so I'll say it. Maybe you're right. Maybe we will see each other again. But just in case we don't, I want you to know how much you've meant to me. I'll never be able to shake you. Whenever I see a big pair of feet or a cheesy mustache, I'll think of you. Whenever I smell month-old socks, I'll think of you. And the next time somebody nails my shoe to the floor, when somebody gives me a martini that tastes like lighter fluid, imagine what this place would have been like if I hadn't found you here. Lynn brings up, a, as you mentioned earlier, Brian, a much-watched uh, series finale. And uh, and it's one that, as we heard in that clip there, gives a lot of the closure people might have wanted to the relationships they've been following for years. Yeah, and MASH was a special case uh, in a lot of ways. That show tonally was something unlike anything else on television at that point. Uh, you know, very much a show that kind of in a lot of ways, I believe, actually lasted longer than the actual conflict mm-hmm. in which it took place. Um, and was, of course, it was never about the Korean War. Anybody who watched the show knows what it was actually about, which, of course, Vietnam, of course, it also outlasted that. Um, and that's the show that a lot of people like it's very feasible that you know you you watch it as a child you grew up with it into as an adult and so it does i think resonate and stick with people in, in a very meaningful way because those characters really became such a huge part of people's lives thanks a lot for that call brian do you think a series finale is different in the age of mash you know when it was mainly meant for that initial broadcast and yeah some syndication later versus a streaming show that, uh, you know, counts on people in some ways watching it maybe in real time, but maybe discovering it five years later. Sure, and we can get into the metrics of streaming television. That's a whole other interview and and, and make it make sense. But um, the the takeaway, I think, is that it, there is a sort of disposability in the streaming age, right? There are shows that will stick around, that will last, that will resonate, uh, that will mean something to people. But they don't feel like events in the same way because it it really comes down to the whole idea that we're not sharing sort of a commonality in terms of when we're actually watching it, where we're actually watching it. If you were watching the MASH finale, you and 105 million other people were all tuned into CBS that night. Whereas if you're watching, uh, say, the finale of Ted Lasso or Succession or something like that, you might watch at the same time. Like, you know, we would sit and like when we watched it, we made sure we watched it as soon as eight o'clock rolled around. We switched over to, to sorry. I keep saying HBO Max. It's Max now. <laughs> I do so under protest. I, I, ref, I refuse to acknowledge that name. Um, but we, we made sure the app was loaded so we could watch it as soon it was up as it was up. Right. But that's still not the same. Right. And so appointment viewing is gone. Uh, that sort of shared communal community event is gone in an age of fragmentation. Uh, it, it's really hard to have that same sort of impact and oomph. And I think probably the last show to really do it was Game of Thrones. And that's, I think, a part of why it was such sort of vicious backlash because some people were gathered around watching it to see how it ended um so that's it's 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 definitely a different time and is it different brian because you know uh the creators of mash say knew what their ratings were they might have focused group things i don't know but a creator of a tv show today has instant feedback for better or worse immediately from the fan community if any well, instant feedback from the fans, for sure. There's uh, jokes uh, in the uh, Ted Lasso subreddit, for instance. People were asking, like, did the writers just follow us and just write what we <laughs> wanted to see? And I think there's an argument that, yeah, they probably did. Uh, but also, you know, in terms of, like, the actual metrics of how ratings are, are are doing for shows and that kind of thing, 
those numbers are very much under lock and key at most of the major streaming outlets. It's very difficult for showrunners to know exactly how a show is doing until they get the call. Hey, you've been picked up for another season or, Hey, you just got canceled. Right. So it's, it's really hard. I think in a lot of ways to build out those seasons uh, in a way that, you know, with linear television, it was a lot easier because if you got renewed for a season, you knew you got X number of episodes. You could either, and, and you might get picked up again if the ratings were solid. The folks who did MASH, they knew they are going to be going on for a while until eventually they decide, okay, the show's going to end or our ratings are, are down. So we're going to, you know, we have one less uh, season to tell the story, so we're going to do it. That doesn't really happen. That's a luxury in the streaming age. Brian, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us today. Thank you for having me. That's Brian Carr, Professor of Communication, Information Science, and Women and Gender Studies at UW-Green Bay. We talked to them today about what makes a great or not-so-great TV finale, and you could keep sharing your favorites, your hits, your misses for final episodes over on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Coming up, find out how a new agreement on Wisconsin's shared revenue system could affect communities around the state and what kind of strings may be attached to local funding. I'm Rob Ferrett. This is Central Time.